HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. Today, we're joined by author Peggy Wolf. Peggy is an Illinois native who ended up in food writing almost by accident. Her thirst to tell cultural stories led her on a journey to capture the unique tastes of Midwestern food. Over the years, Peggy wrote regularly for the Chicago Tribune, as well as a number of other national publications. Her articles covered everything from a passion for fresh arugula to Passover meal traditions. Peggy then set out to collect essays from leading Midwestern voices to tell the story of the region through the eyes of food. She published these essays in a book called Fried Walleye and Cherry Pie from the University of Nebraska Press. Let's welcome Peggy to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, you have quite um, a prolific uh professional background and have done so much writing uh, in uh, around food and culture. So how did you get into the business of food writing? Uh, through the back door. I, um, let's see, when I left Los Angeles, um, I had not really ever taken a writing class and I registered Northwestern in the adult classes. And in the fourth quarter, um, my professor said, either you write a formal essay or you start a book project. Well, I'm not a formal essay writer. So I started a book project and I modeled it after um, a writer, Oliver Sacks. He's really a neurologist, but he wrote An Anthropologist on Mars. And this was a collection of seven essays about his patients um, one, and, and anyway, and so my, my professor, Sheila Donahue, said, here's your model, you know, and, and then she slapped down, this was in August, she said, and here's, your, and here's your audience, and it was the first year of the food issue of The New Yorker. And so literary food writing had risen up to the surface and so I just began, and um, I, I think one of the very biggest um, and most maybe impressive, uh, I read an essay about having breakfast in Rick Bragg's mother's kitchen, in his mama's kitchen. It wasn't about food. It was really about the South. He's a great writer. This is a guy who grew up in Alabama, and he was poor. But, I mean, he's, you know, he ended up at the New York Times. And so I, I look at this essay, and, I mean, honestly, it is about the eggs, the bacon, you know, the biscuits, and so on. But it is about the territory, and I thought, this is what I'm going to do for the Midwest. I'm going to collect the best authors I can find. I don't or I, I should say invite, that's a better word, um, invite the best authors I can find and have them help me do a portrait of Midwestern, what, 
Midwestern life told through food stories, personal essays about growing food or feeding others or trying to run a restaurant in a railroad district. And so church basement suppers, road trips for pie. And so I wanted a book that was full of real food, authentic food, and unpretentious food. And I think that's what I got. Well, I, I think that a lot of folks would think that, you know, when they think of Midwestern food, they probably do think uh, authentic and unpretentious, um, you know, as, as almost the, the cultural being of, of, of Midwest, of what Midwestern is. Uh, you know, early on in this series, we talked about whether or not Midwestern food is a state of mind. And what you've just talked about almost describes just that, because, you know, um, you you're showing how um, you know, food is a storyteller. And that's what we really love on this show is, you know, food, yes, is is a centerpiece. Um, those recipes, you know, those dishes are a centerpiece, but they tell a much larger and more important cultural story. Uh, so, you know, you've just kind of described to us how, you know, kind of um, the book um, fried walleye and cherry pie, I think has come to be, but let's rewind a little bit and tell us about some of your earlier food, um, food writings. Um, you know, you're a native of Illinois and you, you know, you know, as you said, you went, you came from back from LA, you came back to Illinois, you kind of went on this trajectory to write and you did just that. Um, give us some examples of some of the, uh, things that you wrote during that, um, you know, sort of your early times of, uh, and all the way up to now, as far as contributing, um, uh, in sort of the, the world of, of print media. The very first time I saw my name in print, I just stared at it in black and white. It was for I Am Jewish, and I wrote a story about being Jewish in a city, being single in a city, and how difficult it was. And I just sent it in to, at that time, the largest Jewish independent newspaper, which happened to be in Indianapolis. And the editor contacted me and he said, you know, maybe you'll write a column for me. Send me three samples. So I sat at my computer and I wrote and the tears are streaming down my face because it's all about these men who broke up with me or didn't work out. And I thought, I can't write about myself. It's too hard. But I moved on and um, I think that... Um, I was very interested in photography and, uh, well, photography, film. I I still have this love of film. But Photo District News um, out of New York, PDN, they are uh, like an oversized industry newspaper. They are to photographers what Variety and Hollywood Reporter and So Deadline, you know, are to the movie industry. And an editor contacted me and she said, um, would you do a profile on a polar bear photographer? He's the world's best polar bear photographer. And she gave me, he lives in Mississippi, Dan Gorovich, and she gave me his phone number. So I contact Dan and I'm interviewing him about polar bears, the life cycle, photography, the whole thing. How do you, how do you, how do you even polish your lenses to go to the Arctic? And, and he said, how can you write about polar bears over? I said, well, they're not paying me to go. Okay. They don't have that budget. And he said, I'm going to get you on the trip. And I went up with Dan Gorovich to Churchill, Manitoba, just south of the Arctic Circle. And I just hung at his side. He put me on a wild polar bear photo safari. We went out on the ice I've never been so cold in my life, honestly. And I, um, I mean, I, I learned so much about the polar bears. And at the time, Victor Emanuel did nature tours. Uh, he was out of Texas. And I, um, I wish they had sent me to the Caribbean to do birds because it's warmer. <laughs> but I, um, and he taught me, Dan Gurevich taught me how to get free airfare up there because at the time, um, the airlines, like American, whatever, United, were giving out travel writer coupons at the beginning huh. of the year. 
Boy, that doesn't that doesn't happen anymore. I know. <laughs> uh, right. And so I had to prove uh, that I had three interested publications. So I went about and got three publications, outdoor photography, outdoor photographer, and so on. And each had a different angle. So I went and I froze. And my only expense, honestly, um, was to pay for my own hotel, which was at the time a motel for $7 in the Arctic, and my food. I learned about Arctic char. I mean, it, mm. it cost me nothing, okay? And I went and I wrote three pieces. And, of course, I used his photos because he's he's written for Life Magazine, Geographic, I, you know, coffee books and so on. And I ended up, I was so scared to stay up there. I had my story. I knew how many words each publication would run. And I had my story. And so I was afraid I would get stuck up there because there was a storm coming in. And it is October. And the bears are walking around town waiting for Hudson Bay to freeze <laughs> over. Right. No, there's a wild polar, there's a, there's a jail for polar bears. Because some of the townspeople, listen, there weren't many, but they would go up and, you know, try to tempt a bear with whatever. And the bear could take out the shoulder of the guy. He was drunk. Anyway, the depth of story material was just very rich. And I ended up, I said, I have to leave. I'm freezing. I have my story. <coughs> and I went to the airport in Churchill, Canada. It is a boutique airport. And I went to where the pilots check in for weather, and I stuck out my thumb. I hitchhiked on a small plane out of Churchill. And the pilot said, where are you going? I go south, anywhere south. He says, I'm going to Winnipeg. I said, I'm in. <laughs> I, I mean, so wow. I, anyway, um, yeah, and from Winnipeg to Chicago, you know, I, I, I mean, I didn't have to hitchhike like I could get on an American Airlines flight. So I did it, and I wrote, and I loved writing, and I think this is, I can't even underline it, because it was all my experience. You know, I had worked on films for 10 years, mm -hmm. and you work with so many different people on a set, and... It's a, it's a collaborative experience. But this was, I controlled the whole thing. And I don't know, I liked that. I, I chose not to live in L.A. anymore just because of the city. I had great friends there, and I, I had some really good um, projects to work on. But um, anyway, I left filmmaking and just grew into writing. What you just described about um, your experience, you know, in, in polar communities and uh, northern Canada, um, you know, the richness, to use your word, of those of those stories. How did an experience like that inform your later writing, um, you know, in, in food, um, which, you know, kind of circled back a little bit, I think, to your own personal experiences, because you mentioned earlier, you're, you are Jewish. And, and I noticed in reviewing some of your um, writings in the Chicago newspaper that a number of them were about Jewish uh, holiday food culture. Right. Well, you know, the one, the one big takeaway, okay, is that be present I know that's an overused clause, but be there, be there and show up and observe and talk to people. You can do a phone interview, but you're not going to get the color and the depth and so on that you will if you show up. And so I have a, a book collection right now that uh, we are trying to find a couple co-authors trying to find a publisher for. And I look at one of the essays I did on Amish bread and I drove, my husband left his big downtown job for a day and he went with me to Amish country in Indiana. Hmm. And you couldn't have gotten a story unless you were welcomed into someone's house 
And the woman had baked a, a whole loaf of whole wheat bread and was sitting on the table because I was there to talk about bread. But to be inside of an Amish community, to go to their grocery store and, and you know, and you could write about the parking lot there because, I mean, it's like Capri. These people I interviewed, they, they have no, they don't plug into anything. They don't have a car. They have a horse and carriage. Mm -hmm. The closest parking spots to this grocery store, it's kind of like the Walmart for the Amish, are for horses and carriage. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because I live about a half an hour away from the fourth largest Amish settlement in the world in Ohio, uh, Middlefield. And so, you know, I am, I can absolutely visualize and I know exactly what you're saying about, you know, you there's no way that you can really... Um, get the the authentic flavor of that the something like the Amish culture unless you're there you can read about it in a book but seeing those horses and buggies in parking lots uh, you know and and smelling and tasting that bread and being welcomed into someone's kitchen is a very different experience than you know just um, you know maybe researching about it or even you know I mean I guess in the con in the context of old order Amish you probably are not on the phone um, but you know what I mean you know it's you could have a conversation with someone but unless you're immersed in that as you're saying um, uh, I love what you're saying about be showing up and being present um, and as a storyteller you definitely that's I probably um, the best advice I think anybody could give so I'm glad that you've shared that with the listeners so I remember um, when I was dating the man who I would marry, okay, my, my tech guy here, he had signed up to run a 100-mile race, ultra marathon, through the mountains, through the Sierras. And at the time, you could walk into the Tribune and make an appointment and talk with an editor. And so I, I made an appointment. I went in. I talked with um, a woman who edited at that time, they had a nice Sunday magazine. And I told her about these seven Chicago runners that were going to run 100 miles in the Sierras. And they were given 30, 30 hours. You don't sleep. You, don't, you have to stop for rest points. Anyway, I blabbed and blabbed about it. And she said to me, do you write how you talk? And I thought, Peggy, say yes, <laughs> because <laughs> there's something she's picking up. And she said, I'll work with you. And they ended up running it as cover story, but I couldn't have written this article. It was 10,000 words. Nobody reads that much anymore. Had I not been there to see the start line at 5 a.m. in the dark, to see people cross the finish line, like this one guy, I think he was the oldest in the race. There were only a thousand. You have to, you're lotteried in. And he had stuffed sticks and, and leaves up his nose because he had a nosebleed at a high altitude, but he crossed the finish line. So this is what I mean by be present. This is Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm Capri Cafaro. We'll be right back after this break. Hi, I'm Kiki Luya, the Executive Director of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Shift Work. In the last six months, some 6,500 restaurants have closed their doors, and there's never been a time when restaurants and their 12 million workers have been more vulnerable. It's time to transform hospitality. With Shift Work, a podcast made in collaboration with RWCF and HRN, we're shifting the conversation about how the restaurant food you love makes its way to the table. What does it really take to make that experience happen? And who are the countless workers responsible? We're talking porters, cleaning crew, prep cooks, servers, baristas, hosts, bartenders, barbacks, managers, sommeliers, and chefs. I'll also introduce you to organizations that are leading industry transformation. We'll discuss mental health, fair pay, racial justice, and how hospitality can change for the better. We need it. Listen to and follow Shift Work on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. We are still speaking with author Peggy Wolf. She's been telling us about her adventures capturing stories in faraway places like the Arctic 
and how that inspired her to write about food and culture. Let's welcome Peggy back to hear more. What about some of the articles that you've written specifically about food and culture? Let us let us taste some of those over the airwaves. Well, um, fishing, I had never caught a fish. I decided, um, a girlfriend and I, she's a writer from Evanston, Illinois, and we went to Utah and uh, Park City um, in summer, and we signed up for um, a how to fish thing with this with this guy, and I had no clue. I never caught a fish in my life, so we got our fishing license for the state of Utah, and he picked us up, and he was like in his late twenties. Um, he knew everything. He had grown up with fishing. This adorable guy. And he, he brought everything. He brought the fishing poles. He brought, I, I didn't know how to tie, a, you know, <laughs> what a tie was. So he takes us to this rib, river, the Weber, which is loaded with uh, brown trout. And he taught us how to fish. Uh, you know, how you cast, how you whatever. My friend, she fell face down in the drink. <laughs> and and uh, But she caught three fish. And... I hadn't caught a fish. However, I had my first experience and I, I got a, um, I cast and he showed me, he says, see trout, they like to pod up. They like to pick little caves, crevices in the river, and then they like to hang there. I thought, okay, so let's try to aim, you know, and I caught a fish and he said, and he kept, he was yelling behind me, reel it in, hold it there, pull it, you know, all the stuff. And then there it was in front of my face, you know. So I I wanted to write, okay, so it's a story. It is about the environment of being in the mountains and the river and what it looks like, and it but it is about food. So absolutely. This is totally about food. And um I I think that's my model for I, I guess I call it literary food writing. Um, it's a personal essay on food, and my editor at um, at the Chicago Tribune, we ran it as a summer food story, um, and it was really about catching my first fish, and and so on. So that's my thing, and I did it for Jewish food stories, um, the Tribune. Okay, like for Passover, which is spring, I covered the Mimuna. This is a Moroccan holiday and or Sephardic holiday where on the very last day of Passover, you know, you don't eat bread, you don't eat anything that's been fermented or yeasted and so on. And what they do, what the Sephardic people do is they have a mimuna. And this is a party like you haven't seen. They make pancakes, they make these wonder, you know, and so I was invited to a Mimuna party by a Moroccan Jew here in Chicago. And I went and I'll tell you, these people know how to eat and party and (laughs) dance. And I never saw a spread of food like that. So that was, and, and it seemed, it was funny because that year, the New York Times ran a piece on Mimuna and a lot of other big, it just Mimuna surfaced, you know, well, and it sounds like, I mean, while you are Jewish, uh, I guess you're not Sephardic. And so this no, is something that, no. that maybe was not in your common uh, observance or practice in Passover. So it had to have been, you know, an interesting lived experience for you as well. It was fascinating. I had no idea what it was. And it was funny because the the, the Chicago Tribune does have a test kitchen. Every single recipe that we ran, um, they tested there. And they photographed it, and he, my editor usually gave me the cover, which means the cover of the food section. And it's this beautiful picture of these pancakes rolled up, and they're sort of, they're not soft, but they're very thin, and you dip them in these syrups and honey, and, you know, this is a whole new thing. Right. Um, I think my very first, yes, uh, with uh, Carol Haddock, she 
was my first food editor at the Tribune, and it was a Passover story I wanted to do. I just pitched it. I really didn't know her um, at all. I hadn't met her. And no, I'm thinking, wait a minute. No, I'm going to back up. I I want to tell you about a story about arugula. Oh, please do. Okay. People, people did not yet know what arugula was. I mean, I, I tell people I was writing about arugula and they go, what is that? Let's see, going back to an anthropologist on Mars, which is a book with, you know, seven different essays from this neurologist about his patients. I wanted to write a book just like that. And so I would pick seven, eight, even nine different people who were in the business of feeding us. So that's a chef, it's a farmer, it's a housewife, and so on. And I started with a farmer, and a friend of mine said, hey, go out and see David Cleverton at Kinnikinnick Farm. Okay, it's about an hour and 45 minutes from me, but I went out there, and he grew Italian greens. And he sold them at the farmer's markets. He was selling them to the biggest Italian chefs in town. I hung out with him at his farmer's market. I went in his truck on Saturdays to deliver washed greens, right? What? The, the chefs love it. They go, you just played it. You don't do anything with this beautiful stuff. And so why did he pick Italian greens? He says, well, because the potato guy's over there at the market and he does potatoes. I had to pick something different. <laughs> so he was a great... He was a great story, and I began to write about him and write about I, I had enough Capri for a book. I didn't know how to shave it down. And finally, I, I mean, on his whole operation, and finally I hard-focused on one crop, the arugula. I called it arugula fever. My lead was, and I saw this, a man came up to his stand with a $100 bill and said, a bag of arugula, please. It's two dollars and twenty-five cents, and in fact, my and that's my lead, and that happened because it's a wealthy area, Evanston. People call and they go to the um, the the cash station right before they go. So there's all these crisp twenties. This guy had a hundred dollar bill, bag of arugula. So that's a good lead, and I just sent it into the Tribune, um, and they ran it. I mean, they didn't know me. I didn't know them. And that was my first food story. So it had to do with starting a food book, okay, of a collection of essays. But I I couldn't, I struggled with how do you tell David Cleverton, Susan Cleverton's story? It was so rich. This was his fourth job. The guy had traded bonds in Chicago. He'd been a CTA truck driver. I mean, <laughs> he... He just he just lands. He had taken, I mean, this is really interesting, um, the Wisconsin Department of Corrections, okay, he asked them to give him a guy, he'll put a radio collar on his ankle, and he wanted this, this prisoner to be rehabbed and in, in to learn agricultural life in farming. And they agreed to do it. I mean... Who, you know, who does this? So you have his, his secrets, his confessions, his, the healing power of agriculture. It, it becomes much bigger than food. I was just going to say, I mean, what you're describing, um, as you alluded to earlier in our conversation, is so much more um, than just, you know, green leaves or, you know, going out and harvesting um, or going and selling, uh, you know, at a farmer's market. Um, you know, there's there's a whole uh, a whole history, a whole personality, uh, a whole life um, behind, you know, in this case, um, a bundle of arugula, which, I, you know, I think is what makes your your work so compelling. I, I have to ask, you know, you were saying that, you know, it, it 
was so difficult in this case to, you know, you had enough for a book and you had to like focus in on arugula. And I guess you kind of alluded to some of this where you were saying, you know, he had like 10 different jobs and was a truck driver and a bond trader. What else, if you were able to write a whole book on this experience, what else would you have included um, that might fall under that umbrella of, you know, food as storyteller um, in this, in this experience? Well, you know, it can be told chronologically. I mean, this guy, David Cleverton, he, uh, it was his second wife. And I think at the time they were living in the city and they wanted to find like a country or a rural place where they could combine their families. He pulls out a map. He looks at the train line. He picks the farthest stop on the Metra, the Northwest line, which is somewhere in like, you know, Wisconsin, he goes there. I'm going to, I'm going to find a home there. And he did. And he started growing vegetables. He wanted to have a few vegetables. Well, why did he get a farm was because he outgrew his little plot. And so, you know, the, the story just got larger and larger. And so he hires a real estate agent to drive him around northern Illinois, and he just waves his arm at at a property that had an old barn. He goes, I want something like that. At the end of the day, it was his. He knew nothing about soil. I mean, <laughs> he taught himself everything. Oh, how inspiring. I mean, just, you know, you think about folks, particularly now, you know, during uh, this, you know, tumultuous time of the pandemic where people, you know, you have the great resignation that's happening and people kind of pivoting and doing totally different things and, you know, folding up their tent and leaving large cities and, and moving out into the country and changing their entire life's direction. It sounds like, you know, this guy was way ahead of his time. Uh, yes, yes, um, exactly. He loved, 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 loved growing food. And, you know, when, like, and he did it organically. And that is, I learned how hard that was. Like, he had some chickens at the time. I mean, now he's much more into animals. But at the time, he was growing asparagus. He grew a lot more than Italian greens. He grew these tomatoes that were out of, out of this world. Um, and he had this asparagus patch. Well, asparagus is a spring crop, and it was coming up. And in order to weed the patch, he sends the chickens through the asparagus patch to nibble at the ground. Oh, wow. That is organic farming. You know, and so, like, where do you stop? You show up the next day. And, you know, the very first day that I went out there, you know, you talk about the Midwest generosity. You talk about the qualities, and and I actually think fried walleye brings out a lot of this, of genuineness and so on. He he has Monday morning meetings for his staff, for his interns, for, uh, and so on, in the barn. And I showed up, and he had a big sign on a chalkboard, welcome Peggy Wolf. Oh my God, I took a chair and listened to his Monday morning meetings. He went through everything that they were going to do. And then, you know, he and I met. We, I, I talked with him, and I said, well, do you mind if I, you know, use my recorder? He goes, no, no recorder. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll take notes. By the middle of the day, after he'd worked a half a day, we sat and talked again. And uh, I said, so um, it's okay if I put it on, if I turn, turn my recorder on? He goes, yeah, it's fine. He had grown to trust me in a half a day. I had earned his trust. He didn't know who I was, right? And he knows who sent me. But uh, you have to be patient. You have to be there, show up. Uh, just the same thing. And just talk to people. Watch them. Let me tell you how he washed these greens. He had an old washing machine plugged in, okay? He puts the greens in, takes a big fishnet, right? Like a big, you know, like your laundry bag for your kids or (laughs) something, right? right? 
okay. And he puts the greens in this fishnet bag and he swishes them around in the washing machine. He turns it on. I, I mean, when have you seen anything like this? And then it hangs up to dry and then he doesn't, wow. tr- they are triple washed. And from this rural kind of image I'm, I'm talking about that I saw to them being plated, these greens being plated on the best tables, Italian tables in the city. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a true farm to table, um, you know, imagery, which, you know, again, I think we take some of that for granted. We hear these kind of things thrown around. Oh, it's farm to table. Oh, it's organic. Oh, you know, uh, it's artisan. It's small batch, whatever it may be. And I think that, you know, there's there's a connotation that is associated with those things. Um, but I think that we are, uh, you know, to actually see what goes on behind those words um, that we appropriate so much meaning to has to just be incredible. I, I want to meet this guy. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. What a, what a, um, an inspiration. He, he is, he, he really is. Um, anyway, you can see how the story just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And yes, it's about food, but it is about the way that people live and he always thought the farm, like when his his in-laws, Susan's parents, were getting older, he said, this is where you come live. Mm. You live out your life on the farm. I mean, I, you love the guy after one day. You know? I, I can tell. I mean, I love the guy after five minutes. So, I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure our listeners uh, will as well. Is there a place... Where can we find this arugula story? If not, you know, so we if we could get our hands on this somewhere. Okay, so if you Google the Chicago Tribune arugula fever, all right, arugula fever, Chicago Tribune. Yes, or you can go on my website, okay, PeggyWolfWriter.com, and go into my archives, and it's there. Food writing for the Chicago Tribune. And that is W-O-L-F-F, correct? PeggyWolfWriter.com. It's arugula fever, arugula like the lettuce, arugula fever from the Chicago Tribune. Uh, What a compelling story of an interesting person uh, and and an an unbelievable tale of, you know, how food is so much more than what's on the plate. I kind of want to go maybe uh, category by category through these, um, you know, sort of the groupings of the essays. But before we do that, you started this conversation at the beginning of the show, I think alluding to how fried walleye and cherry pie came to be and you uh, inviting individuals to submit essays uh, to tell the story of Midwestern culture through food. So tell us how you ended up kind of trying to seek out these individuals for submission and, and what happened from there. Okay, so I had a really big whiteboard in my home office and I made a list of, it grew to be 80 authors who were not necessarily food writers, though a couple of them happened to be, they were fiction writers. They were nonfiction writers, they, and so on. And, but they, but they had some appetites about food. Like for example, Stuart Dybeck, one of Chicago's greatest writers, he had written um, an essay about a school field trip to the Chicago stockyards. Mm. And, okay, and so who takes kids to the, you know, the stockyards? But he went and he wrote about it. Um, So I, okay, I had this list of 80 authors. I did get one out of three. I was very proud about that. And I had this other column of what I would call big food, fast food, and real food. And those are the foods. That's how I categorize the Midwest. So big food. This is Archer, Archer Midlands, McDaniel. Archer Daniels and AD, ADM. There you yeah, go. yeah. Okay. Supermarket to the world. Um, there's Swanson's from... There's frozen TV dinners. There's Kraft, the creamiest, most satisfying meal in a box, right? Mac and (laughs) cheese. And so um, 
that's big food. And the inventions that came from the West, from the from the Midwest, I'm sorry, we gave the nation the Weber grill, mm-hmm. the Reuben sandwich, though the origin the origins of the Reuben, like so many foods, is debatable. But you know, like the brownie, the Palmer House here insists that they made the first brownie. Um, but did you grow up without Oreos, without Cracker Jack, a hot dog right. bun, good humors, hostess Twinkies, sloppy Joes? That's right. I mean, what those things that are quintessentially <laughs> American are also quintessentially Midwestern. Well, tater tots. Who doesn't love tater tots? Midwesterners love comfort food. So that's the big food. That that was Orida. And th- and then there's fast food. Ever stopped at a Pizza Hut? How about Domino's, Wendy's, Arby's? Yeah, White Castle. Wendy's and Arby's and White Castle are all from Ohio. There you go. (laughs) And so there you go. Midwestern entrepreneurs started these fast food change, fast food chains. And so so there is a whole other column people could write about. Um, And let's see. Then there's real food, which is farm fresh food. And I don't even have to tell you how that shapes up because that's that's the story of David Cleverton, this arugula, you know, growing right. arugula, growing an Italian green on his farm. And I really believe that. And when I went, I have a whole shelf, maybe two of books. And I, I really looked at books. OK, for example, Bonnie Jo Campbell, she is a National Book Award uh, finalist and she wrote, uh, she's a fiction writer in short story, but I thought, and she lives in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I thought, mm-hmm. I'm going to send her an invitation to contribute to Fried while I explain what the book is about. And, you know, they say yes or they say no. I reached for the biggest people in the Midwest. And the one thing, because the one thing I looked, I, I learned in Hollywood was that people can say yes and they can say no. So it did not stop me from writing Charlie Trotter a letter or, you know, quite, you know, other really reputable nationally known names. Anyway, so Bonnie Jo Campbell writes me back. She goes, I would love to do this. I want to write about fudge. Okay, go. (laughs) And so it's shaped up that way. Some people said, well, what would you like me to write about? And I had a whole list of iconic Midwestern foods. For example, uh, Jackie Michard, she wanted to write about pie. And I said, mm-hmm. you know what? I have pie. I'm so sorry, but I have pie. I could have a whole book of pie. Oh, yes, for sure. But she wrote me a pie story. And I just said, I can't take it. I, I Can't we go back to corn? I mean, corn, all right? Right. So she wrote about she wrote a really great essay about the competition between two farmers making the best sweet corn. And it was beautiful. It was it was a really good essay. So that's sort of how it evolved. I, you know, I would tell authors, you know, can you pick something or I can suggest something um, was Melanie Benjamin. She's in Indiana and she wrote about an event. And it was the Indy 500. And yes. she went every year. Under the, checker, uh, under the checkered flag. Yes, there you go. Yes, yeah. thank you. And so the story is really not about the race, but everything around the race, the buildup. It's about the diners and the Hoosier biscuits and the apple butter and, you know, yeah, Paul Newman. And so, uh, you know, she's a historical fiction writer. So as I was saying, I didn't look for people who were established food writers, though Molly O'Neill, the late Molly O'Neill, she wrote a great piece about Jenny's ice cream in Ohio. Yes. Okay. Um, But, you know, people who would write about who who owned a restaurant and, you know, they uh, let's see. So anyway, I made my list. I invited in novelists, short story writers, Guggenheim fellows, a few food journalists, a cookbook author, people who, as I say, owned restaurants, a four-star pastry chef. 
And I asked them to write about a time when growing food or cooking for others or dining together or roaming down the midway at a fair, that was the Minnesota State Fair, Oh, yes. trying to run a restaurant in a railroad disc became a memorable experience. So I wasn't looking for someone to deconstruct bratwurst or write about how cheddar has entered a new era in Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but I've always believed that the best food writing is really not about the food. It's the story behind it. No question. And, and I say it almost every single episode that, that you know, we do here um, on this show that that is what we are all about. And that is certainly what motivates me as a host is, is telling those stories. And, and food is really that, that conduit to be able to capture and bring together those different cultural threads into one place. Um, and you do it so beautifully through this collection of essays um, that you've managed to put together in fried walleye and cherry pie. And, you know, you have a, a number of, of categories, one of which also, you know, we've talked about some of these, the, you know, Midwestern staples is one of the, the categories. And we talked about the, the special events and holidays. We kind of alluded to some of those as well. But you also have a, a category called distant cultures, which brings out some of the more um, unique, um, uh, you know, diverse uh you know, culinary um, experiences that that come into the Midwest through immigration or migration. I actually noticed one of the stories here, uh, the Black Migration by Donna Pierce. Donna was one of um, was uh, one of our guests early on, and she shared her story about how her family uh, traveled uh, and resettled from the Deep South uh, to the Midwest. And, and what that cultural experience was like, what they brought with them uh, in regards to, you know, crawfish and gumbo and a number of other items and, and brought that experience of the Great Migration into the Midwestern food ethos. Um, we are getting kind of a little bit down to the end of the program. So I want to make sure that we do not miss out um, on kind of the uh the re the resurgence of fried walleye and cherry pie, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it this collection came out in 2013. It is absolutely evergreen, um, and it and it shows because it's gotten some um, pretty recent uh, attention, um, which I think we we definitely want to hear more about. Oh well, thank you. Um, you know, I had gotten to a point. Let's see, this is January last April where uh, I wanted to write the Passover story for the Tribune. And my editor said, I have no freelance money. I'm being cut. He left the Tribune. His his ball, anyway, I had nothing to write. And uh, I wrote a, um, let's see, I ended up writing about how do you celebrate Passover, which is a whole big table of people during a pandemic. And so they ran it on the opinion page. And then I just sat there and looked at a blank screen and go, okay, now where will I go? I got an email from a guy, Matt Marks, who was working on a film, a feature film directed by Luca Guadagnino, who is an Italian director. He was Oscar nominated for Call Me By Your Name, Call Me By Your Name, and he was shooting in the Midwest and because he's Italian and he loves food, he makes his own pasta at home, you know, um, he wanted all the foods in his film to be absolutely accurate to the time, to the region, and so on. And I thought, and so they offered me a job as the food historian. And I thought, oh, my God, I oh, wow. love this. So I worked with them. Um they sent me the script. Uh, the film is called Bones and All. It stars Timothy Chalamet, who is Oscar-nominated Oscar uh, for Call Me By Your Name. Timothy Chalamet is probably the hottest actor in America right now. He's like 25 years old. Anyway, um, I never went to the set. I worked on, you know, in my office, on my kitchen table, something. And he, um, they would send me the whole script. They sent me the whole script once I signed a contract. And there were all these places flagged where food would appear. Someone opens a refrigerator, there's food. Well, is it all beer? Is it, you know, what is it? Who's the guy? How old is he? What's his budget? And so on. Um, I had, this was the best job ever. And I've had some good jobs. 
And uh, I, I imagine the film would come out this year, Bones and All. I don't know. Okay, then, then what happened? I got an email from Northern Michigan University. Um, they, they have a program called One Book, One Community, where everybody reads the same book and, you know, people discuss it and so on. Although they did two books, two communities, and one of the books was Fried Walleye that they had picked. And they wanted to see if this was, oh my God. So this was a lot of fun. They, um, there was a, a professor there who adopted Fried Walleye for her English literature class for freshmen. And she said, you know, they haven't been in school for three months and food is a really good subject to get them back into writing and thinking. And so she assigned Fried Walleye for everybody to read. They had to read the entire book. I thought, okay, I'm going to call my editor at Nebraska and see how we're doing. (laughs) Um, And, you know, there was a lot of, I guess, ancillary things that went on. Um, like they had a chef up there cook up one of the cakes in her outdoor kitchen and, and so on. So that was a lot of fun. And then I got an email from you, um, when I was out in Utah this summer to, to do your radio show. So this was a good year for the walleye. Um, yeah, the walleye surfaced. I love it though. (laughs) Film, radio and print. And I didn't look for any of this. Well, sometimes things just work out and, you know, it all comes full circle and the walleye resurface and the cherry pie comes out of the oven and everybody continues to uh, be uh, engaged and inspired. And I can tell you, I certainly have been. Um, So um, I thank you again for being uh, willing to to join us on Eat Your Heartland Out. Again, uh, Peggy Wolf, thanks so much for your time. And uh, we hope to have you back on the show again sometime soon. Oh, thank you so much. Can I add one more comment? Sure. We were never called flyover country until there were airplanes. I mean, (laughs) you know, think about it. Anyway, we're not. And your show certainly proves it. Well, thank you. That's what we're all about here. (laughs) We are certainly here to prove that we are more than flyover country. We have a lot to offer uh, and a a rich culture that everyone should come experience. So again, thank you so much, Peggy. Thank you. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.